0: 2 kings chapter 16 tonight there's a there's a sister passage in 2 chronicles chapter 28 where if you've got the stomach for it and by the end of the sermon you possibly won't have you can trace in more detail the horrors and the disaster of Jotham's life we're looking at this man king Jotham uh, the details of 2 king of 2 kings 16 put us pretty much in the mid 720s BC The kingdom, the northern kingdom of Israel has been split off for some time now. And the southern kingdom of Judah is in the focus. Which is interesting because in recent chapters in Two Kings, the focus has largely been in the north. But the historian takes us down south to the capital city largely to tell us about Jotham. I keep saying Jotham. I mean, of course, Ahaz. But I'm thinking about Jotham because Ahaz's father was the good king, Jotham. Ahaz's grandfather was the corrupt king who came under God's judgment, Uzziah. Ahaz's son will be another good king, Hezekiah. Hez to his friends. And where will Ahaz sit? There's this whole genetic line But the grace of God doesn't always track the genes, does it? Not that God's goodness was not abundantly available to Ahaz. It's just Ahaz did everything he could to shut his ears, close his mind and his heart, and push it away. And his life... Well, I'm going to suggest to you, his life becomes actually a huge warning... A study in evil. Now, evil's a strong word, but I think it's the right word. You won't find, I don't think you'll find the word evil in this account. Flip over to Chronicles and it's stronger and starker. But our historian's writing with a great skill. He's setting the facts before us. Expecting that we will study the facts and come up with the right interpretation of them. Which is that Ahaz stands as this blazing beacon that says, don't go here. Don't live like this. Don't throw your life away. Let's look at this story. It is full of lessons and encouragements for us as followers of The Lord Jesus. Let's make our way through. I've got four headings. The first is this, and we're in verses one to four. All of life is worship choices. Everything we do, we're choosing what's important, what's worthwhile, what we should give our hearts and their minds and energies to. That's worship. Worship is your value system. You say, that's true. That's important. That's good. I want that. And mind follows heart, and energy and commitment follow them both. So we meet Ahaz, becomes king at 20, reigns for 16 years, verse 2. And then we hear a mention of David, unlike David, his father. Well, the historian has not made a mistake because he doesn't say, unlike Jotham, his father. Our historian is expertly signaling that every king of Judah and Jerusalem should be just like their true father, the great King David. Now, David did many wicked and foolish things and had to repent heartily of them. But as a man of faith and trust and courage, and particularly as the one who received God's promises that a son after his heart would always sit on his throne. David was the great archetype of Jerusalem's king, but not his son Ahaz. He did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God. What did he do which was not right? I want to suggest to you with verses four in front of us, he destroyed his own future, he murdered his own soul, and he trashed his own nation. That sounds like exaggeration. What are the facts that the historian's giving us for which we can derive our own conclusions? Well, he destroyed his own future. He walked, verse 3, in the ways of the king of Israel, and and he went one further. The kings of Israel had set up idolatrous worship. They turned their backs on God's true revelation. And he went one further. He even sacrificed his son in the fire. Baal worship sometimes did that. Molech worship did that. He was a contemporary visionary guy. He was moving with the times. He wasn't shoehorned into this narrow fundamentalist Israelite religion. He was keen to learn and get the insights from the powerful nations around. And if there were kings who were so devoted to their gods that they would even put their own sons to death, well, maybe that would secure Ahaz's reign. Maybe the gods would smile upon him. And so he killed his own son. The very thing which the historian comments was the habits of the nations the Lord had judged, and driven out. Ahaz is, as it were, he's taking all the borders out and saying, come on in, boys. I want to be like you. How many Christians will put their children to all sorts of risks and pressure and expectations? The you must believe spiritual hothouse parenting, the pressure that can come with that. You must ace in your education the pressure that comes with that. You must get a good job. You must get married. You must have this kind of lifestyle. Often these expectations are given subtly, but sometimes less subtly. And the parents reason, well, they'll be happy. We'll feel successful. They'll be successful. They'll love us. But how many parents and Christian parents are unwittingly sacrificing their children and sowing disaster? into their own lives and those of their children. That's an aside. But before we think, well, this is crazy, we we would never do that, wouldn't we? Not in that way, but maybe perhaps with that result, unwittingly destroying our futures. He murdered his own soul, verse 4. He offered sacrifices and burnt incense at the high places, on the hilltops and under every spreading tree. There was a glorious temple in his city. And he thought, what a primitive religion. How narrow just to worship our God. Off he went to the high places, the hilltops, the spreading trees. And what the historian does not say there is those spreading trees, those hilltops were places of sexual excess. Prostitutes. Male and female. That's what's going on. He's murdering his own soul as he turns away from the Lord God, and he's trashing his own nation because it's always the case in, in the books of in the history books of Israel as the king, so the people. The direction that leaders set are the ones followed by the people, and that goes on through all human civilizations and cultures. It goes on in the church. He goes in the world. So he is unpicking and trashing his own nation. The lesson, of course, is be very careful who you worship. Be very careful with what you do with God's truth. Unpick one bit and you will unpick it all. Follow your own heart. Try to fit in like the powerful around you and it will be a road to disaster. We need to know who we worship, what we worship and whether the Lord God is enthroned in our hearts. The wrong choices are evil choices and evil choices lead to disastrous actions. Well, it's a happy subject, isn't it? But this is Ahaz, and he's in front of us tonight. Let's see what happens when Ahaz's life goes into a very, very difficult passage looking at his leadership here. And here's a lesson as we look at verses 5 to 10. Pressure brings out who or what we worship. It always does. When our lives are under pressure, what comes out? Our value systems. And the pressure shows if what we claim to value is actually what we really do value and worship. Here's the Aramean threat. The king of Aram, verse 5, and the king of Israel, a young man called Pekah, Ramaliah's son, form an alliance, they go to Jerusalem, they besiege it, but they are not successful you. A huge relief to Ahaz and his people. But he's not going to be tricked again. They couldn't overpower him. He needs to get ready. Because he has a further, although he's been successful that time, he's humiliated the next time. Because when they go again, the king of Aram, verse 6, takes Elah. For his own, he drives out the men of Judah. Elath, you've heard of the seaside resort in Israel, Elat, so people go for sun, sea, sand, scuba diving, and sambucos or whatever else begins with S. It's a, it's a glorious seaside. I don't even really know what a sambuco is. It's a drink, isn't it? It's a glorious seaside destination for them. It was this massively important trading port. If you had Elat, you could control the trading routes all the way up into modern-day Turkey. It was an absolute jackpot. It had been captured only a couple of chapters before in 2 Kings, and that was lost. And actually, 2 Chronicles tells us 120,000 troops lost their lives in that encounter. A humiliating and very costly defeat. Unsurprisingly, Ahaz... Well, I say unsurprisingly, what's Ahaz going to do? What would you do? The pressure's on, perhaps people are after your head, it's all looking pretty bleak. Can you really trust that God has got this, that God is with you if you only trust him? We all have far less spectacular crises in our lives. At times what feels like unbearable pressure to decide what's true and what decisions we will make. And in one message, Ahaz gets it all wrong and shows exactly his worship values. He sends messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, the mighty, powerful king of Assyria, verse 7. He basically says, help me out, I'm in a fix. And then clearly, what else is written in the message is just written down there for us in verse 8. And I'll pay you handsomely. I'll make it worth your while. So he goes to the temple treasury and he raids it and leaves it without even a shackle. And sends this vast gift to the king. And of course, what does the king do? He comes down. He attacks the Syrian capital of Damascus and captures it. And then he gets resin the king of Judah, and puts him to death. And, wow. Ahaz must have been elated. All his birthdays and Christmases, all rolled into one. Success, delivery, fame, honour, the, the, the pressure's off so easy. Write a letter, form a new friendship, and the people have been paying for that all along with all these amassed uh, this amassed treasury, temple treasury sum, which he just carts off to Assyria. So easy. We were looking at Psalm 27 this morning, if you were with us, and I think that could have been a psalm on Ahaz's lips after this, but he may have sung verse 1 a little bit differently. He may have sung it something like, The king of Assyria is my light, and he is my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The king of Assyria is the strength of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? Now, of course, the original says the Lord, where i substituted king of Assyria. In his darkest and worst moments, King Ahaz may have thought the Lord was behind all this. The Lord was smiling. The Lord was endorsing him that's a pretty deluded belief, isn't it? He turned his back to the Lord and his heart to one of the Lord's enemies. And the worst thing was it, it, it worked. And it's a sad and a difficult day for us when our schemes and our salvation substitutes work. We need them to go wrong, which is painful and humiliating and sometimes terrifying. But the Lord will do what he needs to do to grab us back and get us back on the narrow way in Jesus. The worst thing that could happen is that we're just allowed to go the way of our own desires and live out our values of unbelief and turn into anyone or anything but the Lord and his strength and his mercy. What does to do next? Well, he wants to go and visit this wonder worker. He wants to cozy up to him. He goes on a, on a, on a, on a relationship-strengthening exercise. And so he goes up to Damascus. And there he sees an altar. And he takes a sketch. And he sends back that sketch to Uriah the priest, with detailed plans for its construction. And so zealous is Uriah the priest to obey his king's commands. That's a red flag, isn't it? But before Ahaz is out of his chariot, Uriah has finished it. Verse 11. I guess the king Ahaz so loved, so admired, was so enamored of the strength of Assyria, that he guessed the strength of Assyria must lie in its values, its beliefs, and its God, and gods. And so he thought, well, if we can just import their value system into ours and mix them together, we've got all our religious bases covered, all the gods out there will be happy with us, and we won't have another scary encounter with foreign invaders. You might want to read it like or assume that actually the king of Assyria said, well, well, if you're one of mine, I've helped you out. You have to worship my gods. But actually, all the ancient historians and archaeologists say that wasn't, that wasn't the policy of the Assyrian Empire. They didn't import their gods on people. This was choice. This was Ahaz's cunning plan or his bright idea. And notice that he doesn't, he doesn't throw out all the temple furnishings, not lock, stock, and barrel. And he certainly doesn't raise the temple. He, he adds it, which is really how most human hearts operate. When our belief system doesn't quite seem as impressive as her or their belief system, we don't often throw out, say, our Christian faith. We just add to it. And try and stick it together. And isn't that usually unsuccessful? Pressure brings out who or what we worship. And Ahaz is showing in this religious project, he really did not have any heart worship for the God of Judah and Israel. He never stopped to ask the question we need to ask the question. It may work, but is it right? Is it true? The king of Assyria worked not because his gods were true. He just happened to have more money to pay for more troops. And he didn't have immediate hostile neighbors on his border, so he'd go menace somebody else and enrich his own coffers, being running a kind of gang monster operation overseeing the king of Judah. There's nothing true or right or good about his values. There's nothing the world can give the church which is true or right. We have it here. It's just hard to live a life of faith, but that's our calling. And as we choose, by God's grace, Jesus as our great God and Savior, and as we rely upon the Holy Spirit day by day, crisis by crisis, pressure by pressure, God will honour that faith. He will show us the way through. His deliverances often come late. They're often in surprising ways. But they're always on time as God works out his purposes. And our historian isn't saying clever old Ahaz. He was resourceful and creative, wasn't he? He is saying this man is a disaster. Do not be like Ahas, choose who you will worship, and worship the Lord. Verses eleven to eighteen. The devil is in the detail, and there's a lot of a lot of detail in verse eleven and eighteen. Not all of it, our Bible scholars understand. They're, they're making some some educated guesses on some of the details of the worship here. And some of the items in the worship. But the lessons come through. So Uriah, what was he doing? Endorsing this project and seeing to the the refurb of the temple. But it ends up with a complete mess. We have the wrong altar. We have the wrong priest. Because you notice how the historian is saying that Ahab sacrificed. Ahab burnt his, Ahab's sacrifice. Ahaz burnt his offerings. Ahaz poured out his drink offerings. Ahaz sprinkled the blood of the fellowship offerings. The historian's is saying, wrong priest. That's not what a king does. That is, to put it mildly, mission creep. Somebody else's success has gone straight to Ahaz's head. And he thinks he can rule the nation politically and spiritually. So we have the wrong altar, the imported altar, the wrong priest, the wrong sacrifices. And it goes on. He gives Uriah all sorts of crazy instructions. He's turned theologian as well as priest, verses 15 through to 16. And Uriah, what's he doing He's just rolling over. Typical weak church leader. Somebody powerful comes along, tells him what to do. He just double-quicks, doesn't he? It's as if Moses had never given the priesthood any instructions or any temple. And Ahaz seems to get further emboldened. Verse 17, taking away the side panels, removing the basins. From the movable stands, then you have this strange feature in the temple where you 've got twelve crafted bulls twelve statues of bulls, and they have on them this great big cylindrical disc known as the sea and the best educated guesses are that these were the, these twelve bulls represented Israel, strengthened by God as it were to hold up god 's created order, represented by this great This great uh, disc. Strange, I know, but that's how God designed it. No, we don't need that. Let's dismantle that, reads King Ahaz, verse 17. And then the very last phrase in, in verse 18. He did that and many other things besides. In deference to the king of Assyria. That's the shock and the shame of it. The devil loves it when religious people stay religious. The devil's not scared by or bothered by religion. He loves busily religious people. The devil's very bothered by people who take their faith seriously and know that they cannot water it down, compromise it, or or go quiet on it when the pressure comes. And that's why if we're going to walk the narrow way in Jesus and hold on to his truth, and in the language of 2 Timothy 3, guard the gospel, we're going to find the devil very active to discourage us and make life hard. But our calling is to stand firm on all the revealed truth of the Bible. When the cultures are applauding us, which is very rare, more often when the culture is very cross with us, when our beliefs don't sit with the affirmation of all lifestyles, all religions, all sexualities and sexual self-expression and many other things besides. Jude 3, we're to contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. We're to fight to keep that faith true and authentic, the job of the church and the job of the church's leaders is to hold that gospel, guard that gospel, and pass it on to the next generation. None of us has any authority to change any detail of God's revealed truth. I think that's enough. It's a sad, sad warning story. And it seems, if verse 18, it seems like the, sort of the, the, the high point of the sadness that he does all this stuff in deference to the king of Assyria. Don't feel that the, the story just coasts to a conclusion. Feel, feel the misery of the last two verses. Evil never rests. Though it appears to. So what happens at the end? Ahaz got, got his write-up in the history books. I'm sure there were lots of loyal flunkies there who, who could just about cobble together a nice national biographical dictionary entry, the greatest hits of Ahaz, the times he was really nice and generous and, and wise. Somebody had nice things to say about him at his funeral, and as they wrote, some obituaries and histories. He got a nice funeral. A grand funeral. He rested with his fathers. That's what every aging person wants, isn't it? They want nice memories to be shared about them. They want a nice place to be buried. Perhaps with a nice view and a bench. So people can come back and think nice thoughts about how they lived. And it seems... That that A has got what he wanted. He got a write up. He got a nice funeral. He got a lovely location. Now, where is the location? Eyes down, verse twenty, the city of David. And the historian is is, is saying to us, but he's not a son of David. This is a tragedy. Maybe if even if nobody's noticed it, maybe that whole culture was so pleased with these liberalizing changes to national religion. Good old Ahaz, he's broken us out of that primitive faith. We're all more liberal now. We're all really affirming now. The historian can see it. He's in David's city, and he's no son of David. We can take it further. He rested with his father's. And little Hez succeeded him as king. But there's no rest for the wicked. The wicked are restless and wretched in life. And they're restless and they're wretched in hell. I've said many, many times here the pictures that Jesus gives us of hell are those of restlessness. Regret, torment, bitterness of heart, complaining of mouth, gnashing of teeth. I sometimes wonder, is there not a special place reserved in hell for godless national leaders and especially religious leaders who think they can change around the true beliefs about God? And rearrange them for their own ends. I wonder about that. This man is no son of David. And our eyes are led up to the true son of David. The one who was restless at the cross. Who writhed in agony. Who was tormented in body and mind and spirit, who didn't rest with his fathers, who was laid in a lonely tomb, buried at the city of David. Then on the third day, he rose again. This is our extraordinary gospel: Jesus who takes the punishment for wrongdoers with twisted, crooked hearts dies on the cross takes our punishment to give us rest the forgiveness of sins reconciliation with God and a bright hope of eternal life until we get there the Bible says watch out Learn from Ahaz. Be very careful about your beliefs. In fact, and it was in my quiet time this morning, I came across a verse which I wish Ahaz could have had. 1 Corinthians 16, verses 13 and 14. Let's take this up in the light of what we have seen in this sad, poor man. 1 Corinthians 16 verse 13 and 14. We began our worship with it. Christian, be on your guard. It's in front of you. Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be people of courage when there's pressure and danger and temptation. Don't collapse. Be strong, because people depend on you, as those did on Ahaz. Do everything, not for self-love, but in self-giving, christ would love. And he will keep us, and we shall rest in hope and rise in glory. Loving Lord God, we need to take to our hearts the warnings of your word. We don't want to make shipwreck of our faith. We don't want to accommodate the thinking, the priorities of the world. We need your spirit's help, Lord, to stand firm when pressure and temptation come to our lives and where the escape routes are easy but will come at so great a cost. So Lord, open our eyes to see where there are dangers of compromise. And then lift our eyes to your Son, the Lord Jesus, that we may go to him with a renewed sense of need and a renewed sense of confidence that he will help us in our time of need. Lord, we seal our prayer with a prayer that we would do everything in love, in honour of our Saviour. In his name we pray. Amen.